This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On Something by Hilaire Belloc Chapter 19 A Force in Gaul There is a force in Gaul which is of prime consequence to all Europe. It has canalized European religion, fixed European law, and latterly launched a renewed political ideal. It is very vigorous today. It was this force which made the massacres of September, which overthrew Robespierre, which elected Napoleon. In a more concentrated form, it was this force which combined into so puissant a whole the separate men, not men of genius, who formed the Committee of Public Safety. It is this force which made the commune, so that to this day no individual can quite tell you what the commune was driving at. And it is this force which at the present moment so grievously misunderstands and overestimates the strength of the armies, which are the rivals of the French. Indeed, in that connection, it might truly be said that the peace of Europe is preserved much more by the German knowledge of what the French army is even than by French ignorance of what the German army is. I say the disadvantages of this force or quality in a commonwealth are apparent, for the weakness and disadvantages of something extraneous to ourselves are never difficult to grasp. What is of more moment for us is to understand, with whatever difficulty, the strength which such a quality conveys. Not to have understood that strength nay, not to have appreciated the existence of the force of which I speak, has made nearly all the English histories of France worthless. French turbulence is represented in them as anarchy, and the whole of the great story which has been the central pivot of Western Europe appears as an incongruous series of misfortunes. Even Carlyle, with his astonishing grasp of men and his power of rapid integration from a few details, for he read hardly anything of his subject, never comprehended this force. He could understand a master ordering about a lot of servants. Indeed, he would have liked to have been a servant himself, and was one to the best of his ability. But he could not understand self-organization from below. Yet upon the existence of that power depends the whole business of the revolution. Its strength, then, and principal advantage, lies in the fact that it makes democracy possible at critical moments, even in a large community. There is no one, or hardly any one, so wicked or so stupid as to deny the democratic ideal. There is no one, or hardly any one, so perverted, that were he the member of a small and simple community, he would be content to forego his natural right to be a full member thereof. There is no one, or hardly any one, who would not feel his exclusion from such rights among men of his own blood, to be intolerable. But while everyone admits the democratic ideal, most men who think, and nearly all the wiser of those who think, perceive its one great obstacle to lie in the contrast between the idea and the action, where the obstacle of complexity, whether due to varied interests, to separate origins, or even to mere numbers, is present. The psychology of the multitude is not the psychology of the individual. 
Ask every man in West Sussex separately whether he would have bread made artificially dearer by act of Parliament, and you will get an overwhelming majority against such economic action on the part of the State. Treat them collectively, and they will elect. I bargain they will elect for years to come, men pledged to such an action. Or again, look at a crowd when it roars down a street in anger. The sight is, unfortunately, only too rare today. You have the impression of a beast, majestic in its courage, terrible in its ferocity, but with something evil about its cruelty and determination. Yet if you stop and consider the face of one of its members, straggling on one of its outer edges, you'll probably see the bewildered face of a poor, uncertain, weak-mouthed man whose eyes are roving from one object to another, and who appears all the weaker because he is under the influence of this collective domination. Or again, consider the jokes which make a great public assembly honestly shake with laughter, and imagine those jokes attempted in a private room. Our tricky politicians know well this difference between the psychologies of the individual and of the multitude. The cleverest of them often suffer in reputation, precisely because they know what hopeless arguments and what still more hopeless jests will move collectivities the individual units of which would never have listened to such humor or to such reasoning. The larger the community with which one is dealing, the truer this is, so that when one comes to many millions spread upon a large territory, one may well despair of any machinery which shall give expression to that very real thing which Rousseau called the general will. In the presence of such a difficulty, most men who are concerned both for the good of the country and for the general order of society incline, especially as they grow older, to one or other of the old traditional organic methods by which a state may be expressed and controlled. They incline to an oligarchy, such as here in England, where a small group of families intermarried one with the other, dining together perpetually and perpetually guests in each other's houses are by a tacit agreement with the populace permitted to direct a nation or they incline to the old-fashioned and very stable device of a despotic bureaucracy such as manages to keep prussia upright and did until recently support the expansion of russia the evils of such a compromise with a political idea are evident enough the oligarchy will be luxurious and corporately corrupt and individually somewhat despicable, with a sort of softness about it in morals and in military affairs. The despot or the bureaucracy will be individually corrupt, especially in the lower branches of the system, and hatefully unfeeling. But, says your thinker, especially as he advances in age, man is so made that he cannot otherwise be collectively governed. He cannot collectively be the master, or at any rate permanently the master, of his collective destiny. Whatever power his reason and free will give him over his individual fate. The nation, says he, especially the large nation, certainly has a will, but it cannot directly express that will. And if it attempts to do so, whatever machinery it chooses, even the referendum, will but create a gross mechanical parody of that subtle organic thing, the national soul. The oligarchy, or the bureaucracy, he will maintain, and usually maintain justly, 
inherit, convey, and maintain the national spirit more truly than would an attempted democratic system. General history, even the general history of Western Europe, is upon the whole on the side of such a criticism. Andorra is a perfect democracy, and has been a perfect democracy for at least a thousand years, perhaps since first men inhabited that isolated valley. But there is no great state which has maintained even for three generations a democratic system undisturbed. Now it is peculiar to the French among the great and independent nations that they are capable, by some freak in their development, of rapid communal self-expression. It is, I repeat, only in crises that this power appears, but such as it is, it plays a part much more real and much more expressive of the collective will than does the more ordinary organization of other peoples. Those who attacked the Tuileries upon the 10th of August attacked it in a manner entirely spontaneous and succeeded. The arrest of the royal family at Vernes was not the action of one individual or of two. It was not Druet, nor was it the Salt's family. It was a great number of individuals. The king had been recognized all along the journey, each thinking the same thing, under the tension of a particular episode, each vaguely tending to one kind of action, and tending with increasing energy towards that action, and all combining, as it were, upon that culminating point in the long journey which was reached at the archway of the little town in Argonne. To have expressed and portrayed this common national power has been the saving of the principal French historians, notably a Michelet. It has furnished them with the key by which alone the history of their country could be made plain. Nothing is easier than to ridicule or deny so mystical a thing. Taine, by temperament intensely anti-national, ridiculed it as he ridiculed the mysteries of the faith, but with this consequence, that his denial made it impossible for him to write the history of his country, and compelled him throughout his work, but especially in the history of the Revolution, to perpetual and at last to somewhat crude forms of falsehood. Not to recognize this national force has again led men into another error, they will have it that the great common actions of Frenchmen are due to some occult force or to a master. They will explain the Crusades by the cunning organization of the papacy, the French Revolution by the cunning organization of the Masonic lodges, the Napoleonic episode by the individual cunning and plan of Bonaparte. Such explanations are puerile. The blow of 1870 was perhaps the most severe which any modern nation has endured. By some accident it did not terminate the activity of the French nation. The southern states of America remain under the effect of the Civil War. All that is not Prussian in Germany remains prostrate, especially in ideas, under the effect of the Prussian victory over it. The French but barely escaped a similar permanent dissolution of national character. But they did escape it, and the national mark, the power of spontaneous and collective action, after a few years' check, began to emerge. Upon two occasions an attempt was made towards such action. The first was in the time of Bollinger, the second during the Dreyfus business, 
In both cases the nation instinctively saw, or rather felt, its enemy. In both there was a moment when the cosmopolitan financier stood in physical peril of his life. Neither, however, matured it, in neither did the people finally move. Latterly, several partial risings have marked French life. Why none of them should have culminated, I will consider in a moment. Meanwhile, the foreign observer will do well to note the character of these movements, abortive though they were. It is like standing upon the edge of a crater, and watching the heave and swell of the vast energies below. There may have been no actual eruption for some time, but the activities of the volcano and its nature are certain to you as you gaze. The few days that passed two years ago in Herald are an example. No one who is concerned for the immediate future of Europe should neglect the omen. Half a million men, with leaders chosen rapidly by themselves, converging without disaster, with ample commissariat, with precision and rapidity, upon one spot. A common action decided upon, and that action most calculated to defeat the enemy, decided upon by men of no exceptional power, mere mouthpieces of this vast concourse. Similar and exactly parallel decisions over the whole countryside from the great towns to the tiny mountain villages. It is the spirit of a swarm of bees, one incident in the affair was the most characteristic of it all. Fearing they would be ordered to fire on men of their own district, the private soldiers and corporals of the 17th of the line mutinied. So far so good. Mutinies are common in all active military states. The exceptional thing was what followed. The men organized themselves without a single officer or non-commissioned officer equipped themselves for a full day's march to the capital of the province, achieved it in good order, and took quarters in the town. All that exact movement was spontaneous. It explains the marshals of the empire. These were sent off as a punishment to the edge of the African desert. The mutiny seemed to the money-dealers a proof of military defeat. They erred. These young men, some of them but six months' training, none of them of much more than two years, not one of them over twenty-five years of age, were a precise symbol of the power which made the revolution and its victims. The reappearance of that power in our tranquil modern affairs seems to me of capital importance. One should end by asking oneself, will these unfinished movements breed a finished movement at last? Will Gaul move to some final purpose in our time, and if so, against what, with what an object, and in what a manner? Prophecy is vain, but it is entertaining, and I will prophesy that Gaul will move in our time, and that the movement will be directed against the pestilent humbug of the parliamentary system. For forty years this force in the nation of which I speak, though so frequently stirred, has not achieved its purpose. But in nearly every case, directly or indirectly, the thing against which it moved was the Parliament. It would be too lengthy a matter to discuss here why the representative system has sunk to be what it is in modern Europe. It was the glory of the Middle Ages. 
It was a great vital institution of Christendom, sprung from the monastic institution that preceded it, a true and living power first in Spain, where Christendom was at its most acute activity in the struggle against Asia, then in the northwest, in England and in France, and indeed in one form or another, throughout all the old limits of the empire. It died, its fossil was preserved in one or two small and obscure communities, its ancient rules and forms were captured by the English squires and merchants, and it was maintained a curious but vigorous survival in this country. When the revolution in 1789 began the revival of democracy in the great nations, the old representative scheme of the French, a very perfect one, was artificially resurrected, based upon the old doctrine of universal suffrage and upon a direct mandate. It was logical, it ought to have worked, but in barely a hundred years it has failed. There is an instructive little anecdote upon the occupation of Rome in 1870. When the French garrison was withdrawn and the northern Italians had occupied the city, representative machinery was set to work, nominally to discover whether the change in government were popular or no. A tiny handful of votes was recorded in the negative, let us say forty-three. Later, in the early winter of that same year, a great festival of the church was celebrated in the Basilica of St. Peter and at the tombs of the apostles. The huge church was crowded. Many were even pressed outside the doors. When the ceremony was over, the dense mass that streamed out into the darkness took up the cry, the irony of which filled the night air of the travestir and its slums of sovereign citizens. The cry was this, we are the forty-three. It is an anecdote that applies continually to the modern representative system in every country which has the misfortune to support it. No one needs to be reminded of such a truth. We know in England how the one strong feeling in the elections of 1906 was the desire to get at the South African Jews and sweep away their Chinese labor from under them. The politicians and the party hacks put into power by that popular determination went straight to the South African Jews hat in hand, asked them what was their good pleasure in the matter, and framed a scheme in connivance with them by which no vengeance should be taken, and not a penny of theirs should be in peril. In modern France, the chances of escape from the parliamentary game, tawdry at its best, at its worst a social peril, are much greater than in this country. The names and forms of the things are not of ancient institution. There is therefore no opportunity for bamboozling people with sham continuity, or of mixing up the interests of the party hacks with the instinct of patriotism. Moreover, in modern France the parliamentary system happened to come up vitally against the domestic habits of the people earlier and more violently than it has yet done in this country. The little gang which had captured the machine was violently anti-Christian. It proceeded step by step to the destruction of the church, until at the end of 1905 the crisis had taken this form. The church was disestablished, its endowments were cancelled, the housing of its hierarchy, its churches and its cathedrals, and their furniture were further to be taken from it unless it adopted a Presbyterian form of government which could not but have cankered it and which was the very negative of its spirit. 
So far nothing that the Parliament had done really touched the lives of the people. Even the proposal to put the remaining goods of the church under Presbyterian management was a matter for the theologians, and not for them. Not one man in a hundred knew or cared about the business. The critical date approached, the 11th of December, if I remember rightly. Rome was to accept the anti-Catholic scheme of government, or all the churches were to be shut. Rome refused the scheme, and Parliament faced, for once with a reality, and brought under the necessity of really interfering with the popular life, or of capitulating, capitulated. What has that example to do, you may ask, with that movement in the south of France, which is the text of these pages? The answer is as follows. In the south of France, the one main thing actually touching the lives of the people after their religion, which the complete breakdown of the anti-clerical threat had secured, was the sale of their principal manufacture. This sale was rendered difficult from a number of reasons, one of which, perhaps not the chief, but the most apparent, and the most easily remedial, was the adulteration and fraud existing in the trade. Such adulteration and fraud are common to all the trade of our own time. It was winked at by the gang in power in France, just as similar dirty work is winked at by the gang in power in every other parliamentary country. When the peasants, who had suffered so severely by this commercial corruption of our time, asked that it should be put a stop to, the old reply, which has done duty half a million times in every case of corruption in France, England or America for a generation, was given to them. If you desire a policy to be effected, elect men who will effect it. As a fact, these four departments had elected a group of men, of whom Lafayre, the Grand Master of the Freemasons, is a good type, with his absorbing interest in the destruction of Christianity, and his ignorance and ineptitude in any other field than that of theology. The peasants reply to this sophistry, which had done duty so often, and had been successful so often in their case as in others, by calling upon their deputies to resign. Lafayre neglected to do so. He was too greatly occupied with his opportunity. He went down to address his constituents. They chased him for miles, and in that exhilarating episode it was apparent that the peasants of the Ode had discovered in their simple fashion both where the representative system was at fault and by what methods it may be remedied. The end of chapter 19